Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. I like re, uh, preaching through books of the Bible uh, here at First Christian Church because... It keeps me from avoiding any sort of passages you normally would skip over. Uh, in case you're here this morning and, and you, you're just showing up and haven't been around or visiting, I want you to know this is not some text I cooked up to just give to you special this morning. We are following through our narrative in the Gospel of Luke, and it keeps, keeps us honest to discuss everything that Jesus talks about. Jesus has some very interesting things that he preaches on, and one of them is this parable here of the wicked tenants. Nearness doesn't always guarantee closeness. Uh, if imminency, meaning nearness, being close, being present or almost here, imminency doesn't mean intimacy. They're not, they're not the same thing. Familiarity with something doesn't always mean fondness of something. We, we kind of, I'll, I'll explain what I mean here, but, but nearness doesn't always mean closeness. Familiarity doesn't always mean fondness. Darla and I had these friends who, when they always went out for pizza, they would order a pepperoni and mushroom pizza. That was like their go-to pizza. They would go out and they would order a Pizza Hut or wherever. They'd order pepperoni and mushroom pizza. And that was happened to be a pizza that Darla and I would often order. It was a pepperoni mushroom pizza. And so they would, we'd always go get these pizzas. Well... Uh, years into this relationship, this friendship, one day we were going to call an order in together and, and get some pizzas. And, and so the, the wife wanted to get a pepperoni and mushroom. And, and the husband, knowing that Darla liked it as well and would be able to you know, eat some of this, revealed that he would like to order a different type of pizza. And which Darla was, was glad to do that. But the husband was, was happy. He got to order something else. The wife was astonished. She thought they both loved 
pepperoni and mushroom pizza because it's what they always had. But it turned out he was just didn't really care. He just let her pick the pizza. And, and she, she assumed that this familiarity, this, this always being around pepperoni and mushroom pizza meant that this guy actually liked pepperoni and mushroom pizza. But it was far from the reality. That was not what he desired. It was, it was there's nearness to this pizza was, in her mind, meant he had a fondness for it. It wasn't the reality at all. Um, being around something doesn't guarantee your actual enjoyment or true desire for that thing. Uh, we went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and there's a store uh, that you could get to. Uh, it was, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous to be able to get there, but there was a store Darlin knew about that had a very huge and special kind of unique section of Pokemon stuff. My wife took time in this trip to make sure that we had scheduled in all of our busy plans to get to the Pokemon store and that when we got there, she walked through and was looking at and showing Joel the good deals and whatever of the Pokemon stuff. She was very familiar with Pokemon. Do me tell you how interested my wife is in Pokemon? Not at all, <laughs> but she has a very, she's very familiar with it, but do not confuse familiarity with something with a fondness for it. You know what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying there that you can have a familiarity to something and be around something a lot, but not really even care about it or have any desire for it. And what we see here this morning is this exact issue only with much more severe consequences than just getting a pizza you don't like or having to go buy Pokemon material. There are those who treat Jesus in exactly the same way. There are those who treat God in exactly the same way. They have an, a nearness to Him. They are around Him. They have a nearness, but no authentic or true closeness to Him. What? Something flying around randomly. Oh, I hate wasps. Darn it. I wish you hadn't said that. Uh, okay, I'm going to be all right. They won't hurt. If I, don't, if I don't chase it, it won't chase me, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. So but that we have a nearness. There is a nearness to him without any authentic closeness to him. But I have proximity to God, a proximity. They're around Jesus, but they have no intimacy with him. They're familiar with him, but they have no true affections for him. And this is the situation that the religious authorities in Jesus' day were in. There are severe, however, there are severe consequences to this kind of living with God, a nearness absent of any authentic closeness, proximity without any real intimacy. So our big idea for this morning, I got on the board, the big idea for this morning is that nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, Nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, results in crushing by the king. Nearness to the king, is on the boards here, my big idea. Nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, results in crushing by the king. This is a very serious parable. I know the wasp is flying around. We're all kind of chuckling. But it, that's totally in contrast to the reality of the seriousness of this parable. 
which is that nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, will result and results in crushing by the king. This morning's parable is, is a rare one in that it's very allegorical in its nature. Most parables, you have a hard time kind of saying this is like this and this is this and I mean, you allegorize it and you can get into a big mess. Parables generally tell one main idea. And then and Jesus uses the power of a storyline to communicate one idea. Well, this morning, this one actually has got very allegorical um, relation, uh, relationships within it. Um, the, they come along, and you remember, we're just off of this Jesus cleansing of the temple. The conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is getting really heavy, really hard, really serious. He has cleared the temple. He has answered this, not answered, refused but to answer the question about what authority he has done these things and with what authority he teaches, uh, by, by what authority he teaches these things. But the, con- the, the conflict between them is getting very aggressive. But the parable, so then in response to that, verse 9, he began to tell the people, these are all those who are gathered around. After this big conflict, after all this bad stuff's going on, the people that are around, he tells this parable. And it really isn't that hard to understand the parable, right? Guy owns a vineyard, lends it out to tenants while he goes away. This happened a lot back in those days. You'd buy a land. We still do tenant farming where you might buy a piece of land and you just want to immediately just want to have the have the land that you're not even going to farm it yourself. You just want to buy it to rent to somebody else. Well, they, this guy has done this. He's got the vineyard. He's leased it out to tenants. And the deal is that they live there. They, they tend to the vineyard. They take care of it. They live off of the produce. They're supplied there. Their family's taken care of. And as a result, the, the owner of the land then gets some of the proceeds. Some of the profits that are made from this vineyard, as the tenants have done a good job, some of those, a percentage of those profits then go to the owner. So this owner, he's gone for a while, and then he sends servants, thinking, my, my vineyard has matured enough, now it's time for me to start getting some of the profits back. So he sends servants to get some of his due from this vineyard. But it doesn't go well for the servants, right? Three servants are sent and they're all mistreated. Beaten, thrown out, abused, possibly killed. says wounded in the Luke passage. But they're mistreated. They are sent away. There's no reception. So they're treated terribly and they're sent away. So what does the master decide to do? He decides to send his beloved son. Now that language... Should like, oh, that sound, beloved son. There's Jesus is telling this parable with a very clear reference to himself. You'll think back on, um, on the baptism of Jesus, which was back in Luke chapter 4, where John the Baptist puts Jesus down in the water, and as he's bringing him back up, a voice comes down from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is... What the, what the narrative is pointing to with its allegorical um, reality. But the master sends the beloved son, and what do they do? They kill him. They think, hey, here's the heir. If we get rid of the heir, if we kill him, then surely the, the vineyard will go to just us, the tenants. Maybe the guy, maybe the owner's dead, the heirs come to collect the vineyard. We're going to kill the servant, and maybe we'll get the vineyard. And so when the master shows up, 
it doesn't go well for the tenants, right? And doesn't that kind of, like, no one's really shocked by the end of that story, are they? I mean, you mistreat three of the servants. You're there, ten, you're, you're renting the land from the master. He sends servants, sends his son. You kill him, you beat him all, throw him away, and you get rid of him. And when the master shows up, he's not going to be happy, is he? That kind of makes sense. And so he destroys them, according to this parable. He destroys the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. Now, Israel is often referred to as the vineyard in Scripture. Places like Isaiah chapter 5, you can read the song of the vineyard, where God speaks of the nation of Israel as his vineyard that he's tended to. If you're interested in that, you can also look at Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. It's kind of common imagery to have Israel as the vineyard. But Jesus takes this imagery and he gives it. A bit of a twist. He, he's not speaking specifically as Israel as the vineyard, not the people of God being the vineyard, but the people of God are the tenants of this vineyard. It's as if the vineyard is the promises of God. They've been the inheritor of the faith of, of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the inheritors of God's promise. That's this vineyard that they have, the message about who God is, the reality of what, what life for, in obedience to God looks like. They've been given this truth. They've been given this message about God. This is their vineyard. They've been given it, and they are to tend to it. And what do they do? They do not handle them in the way that they are supposed to. They do not take care of the vineyard as the master, as God desires them to. And in fact, they rebel so greatly against God that when he sends them prophets, that's the servants in this parable, he sends them prophets to warn them. These prophets come and they say things like, repent, turn from your idolatrous wicked ways, turn from your syncretism, turn from your worship of the Baals, turn from your worship of false gods and come back and worship the one true God. When God sends them servants, the prophets, to, to warn them and to, to, to encourage them to start treating the vineyard the way they are supposed to, what do they do? They mistreat these servants. That's the whole point of the three servants that he sends. All of these Old Testament prophets warned, sent to warn Israel to turn back to God. I, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, smaller prophets like Joel and Hosea. These prophets, what, God, what do God's people do with them? They ignore them. They abuse them. They kill them. This is what Jesus has already taught on. If you've still got your Bible out, you can look in Luke chapter 11. Verses 31 through 35, Jesus says this, says the queen, the queen of the south, Luke chapter 11, 46 through 51. There we go. This is in the woes against the Pharisee, Luke chapter 11, verse 46. He said, woe to the lawyers also. That's the Pharisees, the Mosaic law, the lawyers. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel 
to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. That, that way of saying from Abel to Zechariah is Jesus is the way the, old, the Jewish Old Testament is laid out. That's the first murder of Abel. And at the end of Second Chronicles, Zechariah, which is their last book of their canon, all of this Old Testament prophecy, they, these prophets come and what do they do? They kill them. It's what he mourns over. We've just looked at in Luke chapter 13, 31 through 35. He mourns, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in, in Luke 13, 34. This city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It's happened just recently in the life of Jesus. John the Baptist, a prophet is sent saying the Messiah is coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. What happens to John the Baptist? Gets his head cut off. The prophets are these servants sent to the people of God to warn them end up getting killed. So what does the master do? He sends his beloved son, Jesus himself, incarnate. So we celebrate at Christmas, puts on flesh, comes, and what is his message? According to what we just read this morning in Matthew uh, chapter 4 in one of the adult Sunday schools, the message is repent. Repent the kingdom of God. Believe in the kingdom of God. Repent. He comes with this message. We saw this beloved son language, like I said, in Luke chapter 3. And also the transfiguration where God says, you are my son. I With you, I am well pleased. It's a clear analogy to Jesus in this parable. He is this beloved son that has been sent, calling people to repentance. But they have no love for the king and certainly not for his heir. So they kill him. They have a nearness to him. They're the tenants of the vineyard. They know the prompt, they know the word, they know about God, they know what his promises are, they know his commands, they have a nearness, but they have no love for him. They have no love for him. And so instead they reject this beloved son and kill him. Well, what will the master do when he confront, confronts these wicked tenants? They will receive justice. He will destroy them. What he says. When the, when the master returns, he will destroy them. He will destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. They will be removed from the master's service and put under his judgment. Now, when the people hear this parable, look at the reaction. They think, God forbid, is what it kind of, surely not. This is not what's going to happen. Now, they're not objecting to the parable because the parable makes sense. I mean, it's like, of course it's what's going to happen, tenants. How do you think you can just keep killing and throwing away the master's servants and not have consequences to that? What they're objecting to is they get what this parable is about. They know that Jesus is saying these religious leaders, these religious people, those who are near to the king but have no love for him, they will not be honored by their nearness alone. They will be thrown out. Their kingdom will be given. Their vineyard will be given to other tenants. They will be thrown out. And to that, they are very concerned about. That they can have a nearness to the king and they're banking on that nearness to be enough. And nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, results in crushing by the king. Jesus says, 
He pulls this Psalm 118. We just heard Psalm 118, the, the uh, entry, the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a messianic Psalm 118. Well, this passage also is from Psalm 118. That the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. What's that about? This stone you think, oh, it doesn't fit, doesn't work. We're just going to get this stone aside. It's the one that holds the whole foundation up. It's the one stone you really need. You thought you could throw away the cornerstone, Jesus, and it's the cornerstone. It's, it's the cornerstone. It's the one that holds the whole building together. You thought this is just some prophet you can ignore. You had a nearness to him, but you didn't care about him. You have no love for him. You put him aside, and it turns out it's the one stone you've got to have for your building to stand. Nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, results in crushing by the king. If you don't trip, verse 18, everyone who trips or falls on that stone, what happens to them? They trip over the stone. Here he is in his first incarnation. Here Jesus is. You trip over him, what happens? You're broken to pieces. It's not a good thing. It's bad. You either trip over him and are crushed to pieces, or the stone falls on you and you're crushed. That's what happens when the master shows up. Everyone who falls upon the stone, this cornerstone, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Now we think immediately, thank goodness I'm not a Jew back in Jesus' day and rejecting the Messiah. Thank, thank goodness. You know, this parable, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to know, but thankfully that's not me. So I guess I'm in the clear, right? But I hope you don't let yourself off the hook quite that easily. We are not these old covenant People in Judaism rejecting the cornerstone that has come. But we have to ask, are we the religious, religiously familiar, the religiously near, without any real love for the Master and His beloved Son? Are we near the King, absent of love for the King? And what will happen when you are someone who is near to the king? You have all this knowledge, you have all this exposure. You understand all these Christianized ideas, but you have no authentic nearness to him, no authentic love for him. What is the result? I think that there is a lot of this in our community. I'll be honest, I think there's a lot of this. I think there's, we are good Christianized people. We do good Christian-like things. We're very familiar with the things of God. Families will often, when they get together at Easter or Christmas or whatever, whatever special event they have, they'll all circle up and say a prayer. But, but maybe never to be found ever pursuing God in anything other than that family grace there at a, at a meal. We have families who they insist on having weddings and funerals in the church. But it's maybe the only times they even bother to get in the church. There we, we live in a very Christianized time. We have people who know that it's important to get their kids to church. Like I'll have conversations with people and they'll say, I know I need to get my kid in church. And my first thought is, what about you? You know, I mean, we, but we have this, we have this Christianized idea. We have, we're very Christianized. We have, a, we have a, a very much a nearness to the king that is absent of love for this king. And all of these familiar reactions, there's often no true affection for the king, which I remind, nearness to the king, absent of love for the king, it results in crushing by the king. Sometimes I think it's good to remember Romans 11.22. Romans 11.22 says this, Remember both the kindness 
and the severity of God. Remember both the kindness and the severity of God. Yes, God cares for you. But do not think, do not think that that will overrule his justice if you persist in your rebellion. Do not think that God's benevolence will overrule his justice if you persist in your rebellion. One commentator says, There is no vineyard anywhere in the universe where creatures may usurp the authority of the owner and of his son and then continue forever to enjoy the grapes. So, what ought we to do? A couple, two things. First, I want you to notice. Notice the long suffering of the master. He sent servant, prophet, messenger, time, time again. Repent. He's sending messengers after messenger. And then he sends his own son. Sends messenger after messenger again and again and again. Time and time again is given to these rebels. Time for what? For them to repent. For them to turn from their rebellion and get in right standing with the master of the vineyard. This morning, I want you to reflect upon the reality that you are in this room this morning listening to this message. And it is a call from God to turn from rebellion and to get in right standing with the master. It's a call to all of us to turn from our rebellion and to get in right standing with the master. This is God's long suffering with you. Time and time again, getting exposed to the gospel message, the truth of the scripture, this message of repent, repent, turn from your sinful, wicked ways and turn to Christ. This is a call for you to turn from your rebellion, to turn from constructing religious fronts, to turn from just trying to erect a facade of nearness totally devoid of authentic love for the king. Turn from that and to come into fellowship with the king of all creation through faith in the work of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Notice his long suffering, but then secondly, do what? There is a response to the cornerstone that isn't mentioned, I think. We have, Jesus says, there's those who stumble on it and are broken, those who it falls on them and they're crushed. Neither one of those is good. Don't, you don't want to be the one who stumbles over Jesus, neglects, doesn't, doesn't notice him, just goes on by and stumbles over him. You don't want to be the one who waits to the end of all time when that rock comes down and crushes those who it falls upon. Neither one of those are good. The, if you stumble, i got to say this, if you stumble over Jesus now, failing to love and worship him for who he is and for what he has done, and you persist in your rebellion, you will be crushed. You will be crushed. The justice and the judgment of God will be your reward in an eternal hell. That is the message of Jesus in this parable. That is the message of the scripture. So this is serious business that we are talking about. But there is a different response. If that doesn't sound good to you, I want you to really listen now. Because there is a different response. There is a different response. Instead of tripping over him, instead of falling under him, won't you fall before him today? Instead of falling over him or falling under him, won't you fall before him today? Won't you, what's stopping you from confessing your sinfulness? What is stopping you from confessing 
I am in rebellion against the master. There are parts of my heart that I still am persisting and running from this, this king to have my own way. What is stopping you from before you trip over this cornerstone or fall underneath it to fall before it and say, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have you been living life guided by your own desires and not God's desires for you? Living and guided by your own wants, your own wishes, your own whims? Repent. Repent this morning. Have you been stealing even though you know God forbids it? Repent. Have you committed adultery? You're involved in other immoralities in those ways. Repent this morning. Have you murdered your neighbor in your heart by hating them? Repent. Have you worshipped the God of self? Have you worshipped the God of man's opinion? Are you worshipping the God of money, of health, of popularity? Repent is the message this morning. Don't stumble over the rescuer. Don't wait until you're crushed. Fall before him today because this is the good news. He offers forgiveness today. He offers forgiveness for you today. This prophet, Jesus, isn't just any old prophet. He comes, he is indeed the beloved son of God. He's God come into the world to save sinners, to save rebels. And he does this by giving his life up on the cross. Jesus takes the crushing we all deserve. You persist in your rebellion, you deserve a crushing. Jesus, what does he do? He comes to earth and he takes the crushing that sinners deserve so that everyone through repentance and faith in that work will not be crushed, but will be crowned as a child, a reconciled child of the king. You don't have to be crushed. The good news of the gospel, the crushing that you deserve is the crushing Jesus took upon himself so that the ones deserving of the crushing could be reconciled, crowned as reconciled children of God. That is what we remember in communion every Sunday here. The crushing of the servant, the crushing of the beloved son. Why? So that sinners like every one of you and me, like sinners like us, could not stumble over him or stumble underneath him, but fall before him. Say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Believing in the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the remissions of your sins so that you would not be crushed, but crowned as a reconciled child of the Most High God. Let's pray. Father, Take whatever was unclear there this morning and and put it aside. Father, I pray that the gospel hits home in the hearts of every one of us in this place this morning. God, how desperately I need, how desperately I need this forgiveness. I pray this morning as we take these few moments here to get ready for communion, you'd bring to our minds these sins we need to confess the rebellions we still harbor in our heart, the nearness we have to you, totally apart from any authentic love for you and who you are and what you have done. Convict of sin in this place this morning, not for the loathing of self, God forbid, but convict of sin this morning that we might repent and turn to you 
trusting in Christ the Savior for the forgiveness of our sins and our reconciliation before you so that our nearness to you is no longer one of a facade, but a one of joy and delight in the God who truly saves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.